Well, hello, and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, just wanted, I'm your host, uh, Dale, representing the Seeker or Christian side, and... I'm uh, David, uh, the Skeptic. Excellent. So, yeah, we're uh, happy to be back. I uh, just wanted to let you guys know we got a, a bunch of your feedback, and we're thrilled uh, that people are interacting with the show and, and really engaging with the topics that we're discussing on it. Um, and uh, I understand we will be going over some of that feedback later on in the show. Um, but for right now, I uh, just wanted to get into our next topic. And this week, it's my turn to uh, come up with a topic to discuss. It's one that I'm personally uh, excited to um, throw out there because it's an, it's an idea that I came up with on my own. Um, and that is the issue of subsumability. Um, so what am I uh, talking about here? Um, when, whenever you're evaluating uh, a certain miracle event or what I call a G-belief authenticating event, essentially there are, there are two, three, two or three elements that need to be established. First of all, you need to establish that um, the actual event took place. Um, secondly, you need to establish that it's extraordinary in some way, um, or some people go, you know, try to prove that it's supernatural or something like that. Um, and then the third aspect is that it, it takes place within a context that's charged with religious significance. And I've come up with three conditions for establishing that criterion. Uh, the third of which is what we're going to be uh, discussing today and what I call the issue of subsumability. Um, so what, what am I talking about here? Um, with the resurrection, let's pretend I could prove to the skeptic uh, with 100% degree of confidence that the resurrection actually took place um, and that this event serves to attest to the truth of Christianity. The question is, well, does it just uh, count towards Christianity or could other religions subsume this event? For example, Mormons also claim uh, to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, does the evidence from Jesus' resurrection serve to attest Mormonism as well, or, or Mormonism as opposed to Christianity? And the, the idea comes, well, certainly Christians would, for example, want to subsume uh, the miracles of Moses, the, cro the supernatural crossing from the Red Sea. Um, you know, they wouldn't want that. Well, that attests to the truth of Judaism as opposed to Christianity. So I've tried to come up with a, a reasonable way um, by which Christians can rationally subsume Old Testament miracles, um, while at the same time the resurrection proves Christianity is true and no other religion like Mormonism, um, or you know even I could claim I'm a prophet and the resurrection of Jesus proves it. That's that's miracle attesting to me as a prophet or something like that. So there's two basic um, aspects as to how I do this. So. The first aspect is I basically, by default, I, I think the first religion chronologically to claim a given miracle or a G-belief authenticating event should be, should be by default, the one that gets that. And the reason I get, get there is because I think to do, to think otherwise is unreasonable. It's saying that God is causing undue confusion. Are, are you honestly saying that yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but that was a miracle attesting to Mormonism, a religion that nobody knew about for 1,800 years until after the fact. Um, this just strikes me as unreasonable. So I, I think that we are justified in thinking the first religion chronologically to claim an event as 
proof as evidence for their the truth of their religion should be the one to get it. However, um, well then, aren't you being hypocritical, Dale? Um, you said that Christians should be allowed to subsume the Old Testament miracles. So obviously there should be a set of conditions whereby a religion can rationally subsume it. And on this front, I, I think there are three uh, conditions or criteria uh, a, relig- a subsuming religion should uh, fulfill before they can claim to subsume a given event. So the first is that there must be no provable contradiction or reason to believe that the truth of the event, in this case Jesus' resurrection, is mutually exclusive or contradictory with the subsuming religion. So some scholars uh, try to argue that Islam, for example, uh, has teachings in the Quran or in the Hadith that would that are mutually exclusive exclusive to Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Therefore, you couldn't really, if that's true, then you couldn't say Islam could subsume the resurrection, for example. The second one is that the subsuming religion must have uh, at least one or more independent miracle or G-belief authenticating events, which uniquely serve to attest to the truth of that particular subsuming religion. Um, And my third criterion um, is that the subsuming religion must uniquely have an overall probability of more than uh, 50% with regards to its overall truth uh, value. Um, So there is... It is possible. Uh, I've had some religious pluralists say, well, maybe uh, conditions one and two could be fulfilled. Maybe uh, there's a religion that isn't contradictory with the resurrection and it has its own unique miracle. And maybe Christianity has, maybe we could prove Jesus turned water into wine or something. And that's not a part of that subsuming religion. Then I still think the third criterion comes in to provide a way to differentiate between those religions so that we're not stuck with some sort of religious pluralist uh, technique. So, um, yeah, in as my closing statement to my intro there, um, yes, I think that Christians have, a, I think that Christianity fulfills, um, can, has G-belief authenticating events and that there's no religion that fulfills the subsuming criteria to take away resurrection as far as I know Um, but yeah this is a theoretical thing so even if it doesn't matter whether I can establish that or not with the resurrection specifically I'm I'm just saying this is how we would go about evaluating whether the resurrection is subsumable or not Um, so with that I'll turn it back to David okay I uh, probably don't have as much to say about this as you would hope but I do want to clarify a couple of things from my own mind. So uh, when I when I read your article on subsumability, subsumability is a word in the title, but your actual title is something like, uh, does the resurrection prove Christianity? Uh, and, and then subsumability is, is a part of the subtitle uh, of that. And so I, I want to, because I think that your overall point that you're trying to make here, and this is for people to... to really read the article that you wrote and and interact with that, is that Christianity is proven by resurrection. That's your first point that you're you're trying to make, uh, is is that if the resurrection is true, 
then Christianity is true. Uh, and in the article that you you made the the statement that I'm and I'm glad you clarified. You you mentioned the First uh, Corinthians 15 uh, passage where Paul says if if Christianity if the resurrection did not happen, then then Christianity is false essentially. But that does not in and of itself prove that Christianity is true if it did happen. And so the first part of your article, and I think the bulk of your article, is making the case for why we should believe that Christianity is true if the resurrection is true. Uh, so I, I don't want people to lose sight of what you're, what you're really saying here. And uh, I do want to interact with that. So let me, let me go to my second uh, observation of what you're saying, uh, which is resurrection belongs to Christianity and no other religion. Before I get there, let me just make a couple of quick observations on the first point, um, and and then I'll make a couple of observations on the second point. And I I don't even think I'll take as much time as you did, and you didn't take that much time. So okay, good, um, <laughs> good for our so, listeners. Like, they don't have to listen good to for me. The listeners. <laughs> so. so uh, point one, Christianity cannot be proven by the resurrection because Christianity is more than the resurrection. Uh, so when, when, when I hear people saying, you're not the first person I've heard use this language, that Christianity is proven by the resurrection, the thing that comes to my mind is, what do you mean by Christianity then? Um, because that's, that entails a whole range of beliefs. And so you can say, well, the resurrection is proven by the resurrection. But uh, if you say, well, Christianity is proven by resurrection, then it sounds like you're trying to smuggle some other uh, things in there. So, um, you know, define Christianity in terms of what you think is proven by the resurrection. Now, some of the things that I think people mean is that Jesus is God or that salvation comes by faith uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus or that the death of Jesus took away our sins, or that Jesus is the exclusive path to salvation. These are some uh, fundamental claims of Christianity, at least certain versions of Christianity. Uh, so if you're saying that the resurrection proves these things too, I would have to push back on that. I don't think the resurrection speaks to any of those claims. Uh, and so I would, I would challenge that first concept, uh, which is the resurrection does not, in fact, prove Christianity, uh, it, you know, at best, if I were to agree that the resurrection took place, it only, uh, it only uh, speaks to one aspect of Christianity, and that's not the whole thing. And then the final point there is that, well, yeah, so none, none of these things are proven uh, by the resurrection. Uh, go ahead and comment on that, and I, I'll swing back on the subsumability piece. Okay, so David, what David, David's right, that this and it's my fault because I'm the one who wrote the blog then. So if it, if this, to my mind, this is the issue of sufficient attachment. It's it's not related to what I'm interested in here about subsumability. Um, but in, in terms of Christianity proper, what, what do I think the essence of Christianity is? Um, I need to be very careful because I always misspeak. And, and so let me say this. It, it's minimally... Um, so there may be other stuff that, because of my biblical ignorance, should be included, but I, I don't. But I, yes, I would say Jesus' deity is one of them. That Jesus died and rose from the dead for our sins is an essential belief. Um, 
and my mind's going blank, but yeah, okay, Let, let's just leave it at, at that. Uh, as Christianity proper, at minimum, inc- I know for a fact, includes those propositions. Um, and yes, the resurrection as an isolated fact, well, that says nothing about whether Jesus died and rose for, for my sins, for example. That's an added proposition that's not proven by the resurrection specifically per se, right? So the for sins part is something that's attached, or the fact that Jesus was God. This is something that would be coming would come attached, um, given the truth of the proposition that Jesus, we can prove Jesus rose from the dead. Um, but again, that's... I don't... I'm Because I get into trouble when I speak, when I'm not prepared to, I'm just going to leave it at that and say that that's not the topic that we're discussing this week. But in two weeks' time, you can see David uh, crush me on, on that one if you want. <laughs> well, so let me just say that the... the uh... Uh, the topic that we're going to be discussing came about because of my response to this post. So I'm also giving some of the responses I made in print to this post. And, and you decided, you know, you wanted another run of that. <laughs> but my, res- my responses were to the post uh, that you wrote. And uh, I just wanted to point out that, you know, if the question is, which it is in the title, uh, does the resurrection uh, prove Christianity? The answer is no. And so you're going to have to you're going to have to go further uh, into this su- sufficient attachment area to make that case. Now, to the other part of uh, your your proposition uh, is is the resurrection exclusive to Christianity, mm. uh, or, or can can some other religion uh, do to Christianity what Christianity did to Judaism? Uh, because I, I think that's part of uh, the implicit concern that you have. Uh, yeah. Christianity really did a number on Judaism. And if someone could do the same thing to Christianity, Christianity would essentially be destroyed <laughs> and supplanted by something else. So uh, I understand why you would want to make the case that uh, that there are things that point to Christianity and Christianity uh, only. <laughs> So that said, uh, my my observation on this uh, point, Jesus was not a Christian. Uh, So the resurrection doesn't really belong to any religion. Jesus never established a religion. And so to suggest that the resurrection speaks to Christianity, Christianity is kind of a formalized religious uh, 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 ideology that is foreign to Jesus. Jesus Jesus didn't establish Christianity uh, in that sense, and so I, I would say, just on the on the face of it, you can't say, well, uh, the resurrection is a, a Christian capital capital C religious Christian claim. Uh, the second thing I would say is that uh, technically Protestants subsumed subsumed the resurrection from the Catholics. Because the Protestants didn't come first, the Catholics did. Uh, and so uh, many Protestants uh, today would say that Catholics aren't even Christians. So in, in one sense, they already subsumed the resurrection from it, its original claimants uh, and have kicked the original claimants to the curb. Uh, so that uh, that may be, not be something that you have thought about, but... 
um, the, you know, historically, I, I think that one could make that case. Uh, my third point is what the Christians did to Judaism is actually worse than, uh, than subsuming the story. Uh, what, what Christians did to Judaism was what uh, Microsoft used to do. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the terms uh, embrace, extend, extinguish. That used to be kind of a, a Microsoft saying, and that's what, that's what they would do to their rivals. Uh, what Christianity did is say, well, you know, this Jewish thing, it's been fulfilled now, so it's over. Uh, and and we're the new kids in town. So we didn't defeat Judaism. It's just that with our claims, Judaism has run its course. That's a, that, that's a kind of a cutthroat thing to do. And Christians take various parts of Judaism and completely reinterpret it. Uh, so going against some of your, your three points, I think your first point here, the, the first claimants have the, the, the right to the, the G belief, the, the G oh, belief, yeah. the, the, the miracle event that, um, I can't remember uh, your term exactly right now, but um, so just a couple of examples, uh, God promises that he would make uh, a great nation from Abraham. And the Jews believe that uh, that the Hebrew nation is that great nation. But Paul comes along, or, or the Hebrew writer comes along, I actually don't think it was Paul, but the Hebrew writer comes along and says, oh no, that promise was never about the Hebrew nation. That promise was really about Christians. And the seed of Abraham was Jesus, not, not Abraham's direct descendants. And so it kind of takes that story teaches it in a way that Abraham would have never understood it, the way no Jew ever understood it, and turns it on its ear and, and turns it into a Christian story. And so the Christians will say, oh no, the Jews just misunderstood their own story. This is really what it was about. Another example of uh, what Christians did to Judaism it would be with, in terms of the law, the law of Moses. Well, when the Jews believed that the law was perfect, it was beautiful, it was you know, if you were to speak against the law, you'd be put to death, and rightfully so. But Christians come along uh, in, in the first century now, and they're saying things like, oh, no, the, the law, that was just a schoolmaster. It was, it was the handmaiden. It wasn't the real thing. And uh, there's a passage that says something to the effect, if the law wasn't faulty, if the first covenant wasn't faulty, there wouldn't be any need for a second covenant. Well, the Hebrews didn't think that their law was faulty or incomplete or that it was leading to something else. Uh, they, they never thought that. But Christians came along and reinterpreted that so that it meant something completely different than any Hebrew would have ever believed in. So I, I would say that the Christians did exactly what you were saying. No one else should be able to do to the Christians. So my fourth point... Um, uh, this is, you know, I'm going to open myself up here because my first three points are good and probably fairly unassailable, and I should stop there. But just for the sake of fun, and uh, maybe we can generate some comments on this, I would say that Christianity uh, didn't just subsume Judaism. Christianity subsumed a lot of other mythologies uh, of the time. Uh, so... Uh, 
Jesus was not the only uh, dying and rising uh, Savior God. Uh, there was there was also Osiris, and I had clipped out a, 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 a quote about Osiris that I will I will just leave out here. But Osiris would be one example of someone who had a very similar story, uh, an Egyptian uh, uh, god. And uh, even around the time of Jesus and in that region, there were lots of stories about dying and rising saviors. Uh, you know, shortly after, thereafter, Jesus wasn't the first, he wasn't the last. And uh, so it is, it is among all things possible that people who, the gospel writers who wrote the Jesus story, also knew about other uh, mythologies of the time. And uh, they, they practiced syncretism, uh, which is a way of taking local mythologies and uh, adding your uh, particular spin to those local mythologies. So I think that there is a lot of syncretism involved in Christianity. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that Christianity was simply made up from the fabric of other myths, but I'm saying that other myths would have been around as the story of Jesus would have been crafted and told. And that's, that's just a part of the, the, the cultural background. I don't see how those things couldn't have helped but, but seep in. So Christianity is, is the chief subsumer of everything around it. Uh, and it is perfectly understandable why you wouldn't want some other religion to come around and, and do the same thing to Christianity. But I, I honestly have no sympathy for Christianity and its claims of the resurrection compared considering what it's what it's done to its you know other other religions around it. Okay. Um, so that was I like the nice short response that you said. But um, okay, so let, I've written down <laughs> I've filled up my page here with stuff. Okay. So so in the first the first thing you mentioned, yes, I let's uh, it's true that I'm trying to sort of delay talking about sufficient attachment and that is something that david talks about in in his blog um and i'm just sort of saying it's beside the point um which it is but that's not david's fault i I take full responsibility for being unclear as to what i wanted to focus on in my blog if that's what you get so i i apologize to you guys for for making you think that i wanted to discuss sufficient attachment there um so your your next point then getting into the so christianity is uh Okay, so okay, so exclusivity. Uh, Jesus was not uh, a Christian. Um, well, he he was the founder. Do, do you mean uh, Jesus wasn't going around teaching that he was God in the flesh or something? Or I mean, and, he wasn't a Christian because the Christian religion did not exist. There was no Christian religion. Jesus was a Jew. He he was born a Jew. He lived a Jew. He died a Jew. He did not create a new religion. Yes, the, it's even, well, Peter wasn't a Christian in the early days either. There, there was no term, right? They saw themselves as an offshoot uh, of a Jewish sect. Hey, we're, we're fulfilling the law of Moses. We're not creating some new religion. Like, that's just uh, most biblical, like, there's nothing controversial uh, as far as I can see in terms of my, my points on subsumability. Yeah. G- well, but, but, you're, but you're saying that subsumability kind of belongs to the religion of Christianity, mm. 
and no other. And it doesn't because Christianity, if you, if you say that Christianity was a thing in Jesus' time, which it wasn't, it was that uh, individuals now can have a direct relationship with God uh, and not have to go through a corporate uh, uh, priesthood to do it. Uh, every, everyone had a direct relationship. And so uh, I, w- I would argue that there is no such thing as a corporate Christianity uh, even throughout the... Now, it, it became more corporate as time went on. But uh, early in uh, the Corinthian letter, I want to say the first chapter around verse 10 or something like that. It's been a little while since I read it. I didn't look it up this morning. Uh, Paul was talking about the various divisions among the Corinthians. He was saying that some say, I'm of Paul, I am of Paulus, and I am of Christ. He actually puts Christ in the list of, of divisions, as if to say, you know, it's, you're not winning any points by saying you're a Christian any more than you're a Paulian or you're an, a, 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 Poly, a Paulian. Um, there, there was no Christian religion, uh, per se. There were differences so, in the early church. Okay. Let's, yeah, well, that's, that's where it gets into, well, what, what is your definition of what we're calling Christianity proper? Like, there, there were definitely, it's undeniable that there were at least a minimal set of definable uh, propositions or, that these early followers of Christ believed in that demarcated them from the other mainstream Jews in the day. That, no that's Okay, so that, so that let's just leave it at, at that because that's, that's all I'm trying to do for my but point. I'm, but and I'm just then, saying that became more formal as time went on. And by the time yeah, yeah. Rome got into it, you know, it's a completely different animal than anything that you could say Jesus had in mind or even the early apostles had in mind. It became, it, it became a completely different animal. Um, and that's the animal that we're dealing with today. And so when I hear you saying that the resurrection is kind of, uh, belongs to Christianity exclusively, I hear you talking about the thing that Christianity became, not the, not the thing that Jesus uh, spent his life doing. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I, again, I, I don't want to get into how do I define it yet, but I think you bring up a good point. Uh, like, for example, minimally, Jesus' deity um, were adoptionists, early adoptionists, before the writing of the Bible. Like, uh, were they, could they be considered saved or were they, you know, damned and they thought they were followers of Christ, but they weren't? I, I'm not 100% sure that I could say, I can say now, yes, their opinions are wrong. Adoptionism is false and it's heretical now. I'm not sure because we have, you know, the biblical text to inform us and educate our opinions. They didn't. Um, So I'm not 100% convinced I would even say that on the issue of Jesus' deity, um, something that I'm putting in as part of Christianity proper, that at the early time, that was an es- his pre-existence uh, to deity was an essential belief. It, now it, it could could have been if you know there was oral tradition uh, when Peter and them came up with the orthodox position. So maybe maybe it, it was still part of the definition. But I'm I'm not sure. I uh, there's an element of doubt as to whether I would say 
adoptionists, a clearly heretical position that's unbiblical, and I would say is not a part of Christianity proper. But I, I wouldn't say, well, these guys were. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be one hundred percent confident in saying, well, yeah, but they, yeah, they're tricked. They're going to hell or something. They weren't really Christians or something like that. Sure. Um, so let's, but so that's a top. Oh, okay. But, so let's see what you have to say about my point too. Then I, I know that you were trying to take notes quickly, the but Catholics uh, and Protestants. I was just yeah, I was just being cheeky there, but uh, I still think that that's a a fair point. What say mm-hmm. you? Okay. So yep. So I, I wrote that one down. So good, we're on the same page. Um, so yeah, uh, it's true. When I'm when I developed this subsumability thing. I, I wasn't, I'm not really thinking about different denominations or sects within what I call Christianity proper. I, I think that... But you brought up the Mormons. And, yeah, uh, I don't the think Mormons, The Mormons would think that they are, though. They would think that they are as Christians as the Catholics think yeah. they're Christians, as Protestants think they're Christians. So they, they deny Jesus' deity, which is what separates them out at this at this stage. You... You can't, doesn't matter. You, D- doesn't matter. They think they're Christians, and they don't that think that matter. they've subsumed. <laughs> but they don't think they've subsumed anything. Yeah, uh, it doesn't matter what they, they think. That we have a defined Bible. Right? Like we're getting say the same thing about Protestants. They don't. They don't care what you think. They would say you're not Christians. Yeah, so we, the same way have, Protestants would say that they're not Christians. So, so all I'm saying is, if the Mormons can't subsume the the Resurrection. If you think that that is an unfair uh, uh, thing, then the Protestants can't subsume it from the Catholics. It's not being subsumed because they're not... Catholics and Protestants fall under the definition of... That minimal definition that I'm giving for Christianity proper today. Um, Mormons do not. Catholics... Many many Christians consider Mormons Christians. Many Catholics consider Protestants Christians. I don't. But but what I'm saying is that many uh, Catholics and Protestants don't consider each other Christians. Uh, and, and many Protestants and Mormons don't consider each other Christians. So yeah, well, that, you're, you're, making, you're kind of making a judgment there yes. uh, on who's a Christian and who's not. And I don't, I don't think that you can do that. I don't think your argument has made that case sufficiently. Yeah, because it's not trying to. It's just assuming. It's assuming a definition of Christianity proper. But it's, I would need to defend. it's your definition. Yeah, and so it's I would not, need to. It's not a general definition. Okay, but yeah, this so is what I'm saying. As many Catholics think you're not a Christian as you think Mormons are not a Christian. In fact, there are many Protestants who uh, would think that you're not a Christian. <laughs> so yeah. it's so, you know you can't you can't. Um, so I, it, you can't just call out the Mormons and say, well, they're, they, you know, they don't have the right to the resurrection because by that, by your definition, well, you don't either. Okay, so yes, I can because it depends on me being able to argue what is what is the essence of Christianity or what I call Christianity proper. That's not I'm not prepared to argue for that now. That I see that as sort of being a part of the sufficient attachment issue, but. Just to give something like I, I take I'm more akin to someone who takes a mere Christianity approach, um, you know, as, so long as whether you're Catholic or whatever, uh, whatever you want to call yourself, if you meet the minimal essential gospel doctrines and, and belief in those, 
uh, at this point in time, then you can claim to be a Christian. Uh, you're part of Christianity proper. Now, as to how you decide various um, doctrines as to, well, are the Catholics right on transubstantiation or this or, or the, you know, secondary doctrines. Well, okay, I, I just, I haven't put too much thought into it, but both accept everyone who's part of my definition of Christianity proper. Let's just assume I've, I've argued and justified this definition. They accept the books of the Protestant Bible as a judge. Therefore, I can use those books to judge certain teachings and say, okay, well, this uh, Catholic teaching is wrong, for example, or, you know, it contradicts the Bible. You, there's a way to try and judge. Um, there, there is some sort of standard why, whereby you can judge various denominations' teachings and try to come, come to the truth. It's well, not the infallible. Don't, they don't have the same Bible as you do. So that's, that's going to be a problem right there. But it includes the same Bible, right? It has all of the same books. It just has additional ones, right? Uh, okay. But they could easily say, but you don't have the whole Bible. I have part. So you, you, you might say they have the whole Bible, but they could say that you don't have the whole Bible. Furthermore, what, what many Protestants would say, because I would have been one of those Protestants, is that they have uh, additions to the Word of God, and so the plagues of the book would be added to them. Uh, there is there is no such thing as having more books than you need, because if you have more books than you need, then it's not the Bible; uh, it's it's something else. And uh, you know, once again, having come from this side of Protestantism, I would have said your mere Christianity is not enough. That that in fact does not define true Christianity. Uh, so it's a good start, but it is, but it is not uh, what I would define as Christianity. Okay, so with the Catholic, let, let's take the Catholic perspective. I, I don't have a complete Bible from their perspective, but I do have a sufficient amount of it that may be sufficient for me to judge that Catholicism is true. If you give me, uh, if you give me the Book of Matthew, I might find something in there, and hey, this contradicts. Catholicism, you you know, you believe in papal infallibility. The Pope taught this, uh, or some council taught this doctrine. This contradicts Matthew chapter five verse eight, or something like that. So, if I can conclude Catholicism is wrong based on the material that the Catholics themselves give me, they they wouldn't deny that I have at least part of the Bible in their opinion. So yeah, but your but your analysis wouldn't work. Uh, because, you know, the, the hermeno uh, helicopter hermeneutics wouldn't fly uh, in this case because you have Matthew, they have Matthew, but they might fly over to, uh, you know, the part of the Bible that explains why the Pope, uh, you know, why, why his word overrides, you know, what Matthew said, or maybe, maybe some part of the Bible explains more fully this thing that you thought that Matthew said. And so you don't have that. All you have is what Matthew said. So you are going to have a different impression of what that means than they do because they have more stuff to compare it against. Well, not I, in order to establish that there's a contradiction, I have access. I can look up what, what is the Pope's interpretation or what does the, this other biblical book say to see if it's actually a contradiction or if their interpretations make makes sense as an equally possible Outcome, in which case, okay, I, I would no longer use Matthew five eight to show that Catholicism is true. It, it depends on 
specifics, which I'm not prepared to argue today, right? But I'm saying if I could prove that there is an actual contradiction, I take into account their interpretations and their their additional books and, and say, no, I don't buy this. I think it's still Matthew 5, 8 is contradicting what the Catholic Church says here. Then I'm justified in saying, well, Catholicism is false. So it must be some other form that of Christianity. I can do the same with Eastern Orthodox or, th- or that sort of thing. I Like I have no specifics because I haven't evaluated which denomination at this point I haven't. So in, in fairness to both of us here, um, in the subsumability piece, what we're going to be talking about, I think mostly is the Bible, once again, based on your, your article. So we're, we're going to get into a lot of, uh, a lot of Bible, Bible-y stuff. Uh, in in that discussion, but uh, I want to. This a primer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's a fair point, and yeah, it's a good point. Let's let's bring it up in a future topic because I I want to get more specifics on this for for my own knowledge and that sort of thing as well. But yeah. moving on then to to your next point, messianic prophecies. Um, well, I did. I so I didn't talk about ex- prophecies. Uh, I I talked about. Well, uh, you know, messianic interpretations, nation, or something. right? Messianic interpretations. Uh, that would that would probably be better. Um, okay. And I also mentioned the law, and you know what I think Christians did to the Jewish law. I think is particularly despicable. Yeah. So, so Christians aren't. Uh, first of all, under my conditions, Christians can subsume, right? Because they are. They do. The resurrection is an independent. Uh, proof for them. It, Jew, Jews don't claim the resurrection. That's contradictory to, you know, Orthodox Judaism or something. They, they don't claim Jesus was a prophet or had any association with God. So God is, in effect, authenticating their messianic interpretations via the criteria of subsumability, assuming it, it fulfills all, all of what I'm saying. Now, you said that Jews, you made a claim that Jews in the Old Testament had no idea that you know, a new, something new was coming about where, you know, it would be replacing the old law, so to speak, or a new covenant. Mm-hmm. Just, I just wanted to read from you uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Um, okay. So, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant that they broke, um, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And, uh, yeah, it just continues on from there. Um, So, actually, yes, they did. Well, (laughs) okay, but I think you should probably continue on from there. Okay. uh, Because I'm I'm familiar with, uh, fairly, I, I think I'm familiar with, how the rest of that passage goes, but I, I, one one would easily argue that that has nothing to do with uh, what you could, what you would think of as the New Testament, uh, because the New Testament doesn't write any laws on your heart. Um, you know, there are all kinds of uh, apocalyptic uh, type prophecies about a uh, a, a future time, a um, uh, a utopian. Where the the lion lies down with the deer, and that uh, swords will be beaten into plowshares, uh, and that sort of thing. Well, that's not this time. 
there is, in fact, from this same uh, passage in Jeremiah that you're quoting, it's uh, reiterated in Hebrew. Uh, I would go with chapter 9, but I don't have a, a Bible in front of me right now. I'm just going off of uh, memory here. But it, uh, it brings that back, and it talks about a time in the future when these things would happen. And so, again, uh, you, would, you would argue, well, that's not talking about the New Testament uh, as we think of it. It's, it's talking about some, uh, you know, fairly undefined utopian vision uh, of a world that we don't yet have. And uh, so I don't, I, I would not interpret that passage in, in Jeremiah that way. I, I think that... Uh, you're you're maybe exegeting it uh, ex- exegeting it uh, wrongly there, but you know I can I don't think so. If you just if you just look at the words, yeah. But if you if you if you take the words and the thought behind it, and then you say, well, is that the New Testament? No, it isn't, um, because the the New Testament it's not a description of the New Testament. The New Testament itself has a similar description that harkens back to that passage. Once again, talking about a future time, it's clearly not the New Testament in that sense. And you talk about, you know, the covenant uh, that's going to pass away. Well, the covenant, when it was originally given, was going to be an everlasting covenant. It wasn't going to be something that was subsumed by another covenant. So, um, yeah, we could we can we can argue about that. And we I, don't need I to. Can, Actually, because okay. so in the first place, I can provide Michael L. Brown is a scholar. His expertise is in, you know, Old Testament studies that he is a Hebrew scholar. Right. Um, so he, he disagrees with you. But anyways, who cares about the interpretation? We, we have various interpretations. Right. One that says this isn't about the Christianity and, you know, some Jews in that in that day saying, you know, what you said and and Jesus or Christians saying it's this. Ah, but who who's the one that actually has an independent proof authenticating that what their interpretation is correct? Well, if the resurrection is true, that's the Christians and not these Jews, Jewish naysayers that are saying it means something else. So, yeah, I mean, we could go to any verse. I, Isaiah 53, there's various interpretations of that. Some Jews say it's about the nation of Israel. Some say it's about a righteous remnant within Israel. Christians say, well, no, that's about Jesus, you know, the suffering servant. It's a, it's a, a messianic prophecy. Oh, but, okay, well, maybe these are all valid interpretations, but who's the one that's got authentic, divine authentication? Uh, it's Jesus, so I'm going to go with his interpretation. We, I, I could say that if I wanted to be sort of smart and not get into interpretational debates. Um, the one that interprets it this way has got a miracle backing them up or, you know, a, a G-belief authenticating event backing them up. The Jews had many miracles backing them up. So, backing you up know, their I don't, inter- sure, the Jews had many miracles backing up uh, their idea of Judaism and uh, their understanding of God's promises to them. So I don't, I don't think that you can, I don't think that argument wins the day. I mean, we, do you mean ones this is, that this are not is, biblical miracles? Like, ra- no, like Rabbi I, no, I mean, I mean, biblical, uh, yeah, you know, the Old Testament Christian. is full of miracles. Yeah. So, you know, we can play the miracle game, but I would argue that miracles are made up stories to validate uh, your, your okay. takeover of an idea. 
Okay, um, but this so isn't a made-up claim. You're, remember, the blog is assuming I've proven the resurrection's true. That, that's my yes, first criteria. That, that, is, that is the first conceit of the blog, and I have tried to stay true to that as much as I can. Yeah, well, um, obviously, if you but, deny the resurrection happened, then, yeah, there's nothing to talk about. Right? That, that's <laughs> it's, it's pretty easy to make up a miracle and say, yeah, you see, mine trumps yours. I win. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think. I think in some ways the Christian made up miracles trump the, the, some of the Jewish made up miracles, but in other ways the Jewish made up miracles are better than the Christian made up miracles. So we can have a battle of the made up miracles. I don't think that. Um, I don't think that it is very clear which one wins the battle royale, though, and, and proves that you know we're the authentic ones and those people were just mistaken. Okay. So so yeah, it's that's that's. You know, I, like I said, I have three criteria. The very first one is, you know, you have to actually prove that the event we're talking about, or AKA the resurrection in this case, actually happened. You can't, you can't just take a miracle claim at face value. It needs to be established that it happened. But yeah, once you've done that and you've proven it sufficiently attached, all of those issues, well, then we have a way of addressing whether it's, you know, these Jewish miracles are subsumable to Christians versus uh, you know, later Jews who claim falsely claim to have miracles or something like that. So user uh, user feedback. I've got uh, I've got two from Tony and uh, one from Jim. Let's just plow right into it. Gotcha. Um, you want to you want to look at the first one? Uh, read the first one from Tony. Okay. Um, so, yeah, first of all, in the first place, Tony, thank you uh, very much for leaving us our feedback. Um, and I know that you addressed it to me. Same, same with Jim. Uh, just so you know, I'm not ignoring you. It's, there's a technical thing where I can't reply unless I'm logged in. So that's why I'm, I'm not interacting with your comments. Um, He's scared of you. He's scared of you, Tony. That's why I keep reading your uh, feedback. You're not supposed Keep to it coming. You're not supposed to give them the inside details. Jeez, <laughs> that was between you and me. <laughs> All right. All right. So, so Tony says, uh, secondly, um, your argument appears to suggest the difference between a killing carried out by God and one carried out by a human is want of information on part of the human. Yeah, that's one of the factors. Maybe you have a point there. Thank you, Tony. I think I do. But um, if, if I were to suggest having committed a killing that a greater good would come of it somewhere, sometime. Maybe I don't think that's going to save me from a prison sentence. Uh, so yes, I, I think that would be regarded as special pleading. Uh, well, again, that's that's not in the first place. Let's say you're 100% certain that you that there is a greater good that would come about. It's not. First of all, you don't have omniscience to know that overall a greater good would come about. And it's also, what is the specific greater good? I'm saying that a human life is worth, and I know David agrees and, you know, Tara and all, all you people are, are, are not happy with this assessment, but I happen to think that the salvation of a soul is more important than preserving an earthly life. And that's, that's where I would jump in with my uh, small note uh, in the notes, uh, which says, the ends justify the means. This is the this is your uh, uh, it, your ultimate view is that the reason God isn't evil is because he, the ends justify the means. He's got greater ends, and so it doesn't matter what he does uh, because his his ends justify it. Well, as me, long as you me, as long as you think that the ends ju always justify the means, then God can never be evil. 
okay, so I, I don't, then here's where you're, you're wrong. I, I don't think it's immoral for God uh, to take someone's earthly life. I don't believe in a principle of life, but a principle of existence. So I, I deny that there's some inviolable principle in that regards. By the same token, though, if a greater good could come about by God ordering us to rape someone or to, or to, yeah, to, to rape, you know, or if God himself actually raped a woman or something like that, saying that that would lead to a greater good, that's not morally justified. So I wouldn't say I'm a total ends justifies yeah, but, but the means. What if, what if three more people would be saved as a result of that? You don't do it. I mean, you only, you only lose one woman's life, uh, but you save three souls. So you're going back to the life. So, yeah, well, um, life, right. so the but, ending of a life is just the changing of the mode of existence. That is the it's, argument that you just made, though, that uh, sacrificing a life is worth saving a soul. So a woman's life is, you know, if, you, if it's rape a woman and save, uh, save some souls, I don't see why you would say that raping a woman would be wrong because the ends would justify the means. The souls are more important. No, but I... It's not in this case. I don't think that the ends would justify those means. So there's a difference in the the means. I don't think the means in terms of ending, changing someone's mode of existence, I'm going to say it that way, um, I don't think that's immoral. So therefore, God isn't using immoral what means. What if God to, saved the woman? What if, he, what if he needed a woman raped to stir up a crowd to do you know, the right thing and change the laws? And maybe the woman was a mess after that. Maybe she was even killed in the process. But God saved her. He, he just used her body to bring about his greater good. In your, in your uh, view, yeah. how, how would that be wrong? It would violate a moral principle, and I need to think you know, principle of autonomy, let's say, or principle of justice, principle of autonomy. Let's, let's stick with that. Uh, God, God himself, let's keep it simple. God cannot save her soul, her, or, you know, any create any, save more souls by raping a woman. God can save more souls by killing, or as I like to say to changing their mode of existence. There's nothing immoral. Fine, There's no fine. moral. So as, as long as he doesn't cause her any uh, emotional distress and just has her murdered, that would be okay. As long as he doesn't cause her emotional distress, I, would, I don't know, I would say that. So, okay. so take the rape out of it. He just has someone murder her. She's an innocent woman. She's murdered, but her murder stirs up a crowd to do the right thing. Laws are changed. Uh, more people are happier, healthier, wiser, and more people get saved. That would be okay then, uh, under under your uh, definition, would it not? Because her mode of existence changed, uh, and as a result, many people were saved. Yeah, well, swap swap murder with killing, then you. Yes, if if I understood okay. what you're saying, but yes. we so, we as humans have a moral duty. It's it's wrong for human beings to change someone's mode of existence without, you know, either divine approval or uh, some moral justification. Like you're right. You're so trying you're, to, you're saying that God can do it. We can't do it because you know God's God's ends are well. We're not omniscient. More justified than ours. Yeah, like the. We have no idea. That's if, what Tony was saying. 
Yeah, but that's not special pleading. Like here, I want to look up the definition because no one. Let me. While, while you're a, looking, while you're looking that up, let me read Tony's uh, next one too, and you okay. can you can respond to that or not. But uh, uh, so Tony also said. And by the way, I'm I'm reading two of Tony's uh, pieces of feedback because I thought they were good. Um, not simply because they were there. <laughs> so uh, there were there was some other feedback that Tony left that you know I didn't uh, include for the sake of time, but I just want to uh, thank you for leaving them, Tony. Um, so he says, uh, I'm listening and haven't finished, but a couple of things. Finally, uh, the firefighter analogy fails. Uh, the Jesus sacrifice is planned, uh, is uh, planned deliberate killing. No firefighters deliberately killed when carrying out an attempted rescue. They may die as a consequence, and that is a risk uh, they accept as a part of the job. So Jesus' firefighter fails. Uh, later, Dale switches to the analogy of God as firefighter trying to save as many people as possible. This also fails since, however uh, many he saves, in his supposedly infinite mercy, he could always save more. Uh, and um, he finishes by saying, I've just listened to a part where Dale says there are two worlds that are the best possible world. I'm always puzzled, puzzled when Christians say this uh, of this world, since it seems to me that Christianity has always proposed one called heaven that is better. I thought Dale was uh, about to say that, but he didn't. So a uh, couple of pieces of feedback from okay. that that I thought were relevant, and uh, I will leave you with all of that. To okay. Say, uh, so first of all, in terms of special pleading, it's a form of fallacious argument that involves an attempt to cite something as an exception to a generally accepted rule without justifying the exception. So I'm justifying the exception. God has omniscience. We don't. Uh, he knows how many, you know, what goods will come about as a result of killing these people or changing their mode of existence. Um, we don't. That's why we have a moral duty issued by God. You know, we shouldn't kill except for, you know, certain unfortunate situations which might arise, like war or something like that. Um, so it's not special pleading. I have a justif justification for the exception in this case. Okay, so um, you're saying at the very minimum in, the, in terms of God killing, the ends justify the means. No, as a if I, if I believe that the ends justify the means always, like then I would be saying, well, God can God can lie in order to save more souls. He can't He can't do something immoral. Violate. Oh, you're just you're just kind of drawing the line there in in certain places and saying that the ends justifies the means here, but not here. Uh, and at least yeah. in some of these things, you're saying the ends justifies the means. Uh, and so it's just it's yes, just a matter but, of figuring out which places you draw that line. Put it put it this way: I don't think that killing uh, violates a moral principle. I don't believe in a principle of life. I believe in a principle of existence. Fine. So um, so I I don't know why thou should not kill even mate. That's a moral kill. duty. That's a moral duty, right? Because we don't. I used to think so, but after listening to you, I'm not so sure. <laughs> there's no, 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 there's no principle I'm, of of life. There's a difference between moral principles and duties. Um, okay, right? but if I kill you, and if I kill you wrongly, it doesn't really matter because uh, you that killing just changes your mode of existence. You still have to deal with God. So I don't I don't see why that would be a big deal, uh, on the way you're describing it. 
Now, it would be a big deal to me because I don't, I don't want to see you killed. I, I, I actually do yeah, it's, uh, celebrate a principle of your life. I think your life is worthwhile. Thank you. I, I hope it is. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so, like, in, it's a general rule that it's, you know, it's good for us to live out our earthly lives. Um, right? So except, except when God chooses to snuff you out. And then yeah, for just morally okay. justified means, because then it's not violating a moral principle. Therefore, God can do it. God sure. can't can't lie to save more souls. The ends don't justify the means. I, I'm saying it depends on whether the means are moral or not as to whether God can do it. Um, I don't think it's immoral to kill in and of it in and of itself to change someone's so, mode of existence. I, I hate to cut you off. We we have we we'll have, move on. We have yeah, run yeah. out of time. And I and I really want to get Jim in there. Jim left two comments, but what about Tony's um, point? Should I just ignore those? His other yeah, points. I th- okay. I think we might have to come back to him next week. Okay, sorry, so, Tony. I'm, I'm just I'm trying to I'm trying to treat my listeners fairly because we could do this for two hours easily. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we do talk for two well, hours. If you, people, if you we, fix... we talk for an hour before we before we hit record. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say for for Tony, if you if you fix that replying thing, then I can just reply directly to his comment or something yeah i yeah so uh tony he will be able to reply to you and we we might come back to this on the on the next show because i think your points uh are important enough to talk about uh and so i appreciate that jim jim left two comments we're only going to read one of jim's uh now the problem the problem with uh jim's other comment is that it had three smiley faces in it and we have a two smiley minimum uh, here, so uh, sorry, Jim. Two mm. smileys, three three is an automatic disqualification. Um, I'm pretty sure that that's the law in several uh, developing nations. And uh, so uh, that said, also his uh, the his comment was largely a repeat of the one that we're going to read. So you're not going to be losing any of Jim's insights except for the three smileys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll fly through uh, this. One of the first things that comes to mind is, uh, can anyone unequivocally prove that the Bible is God's actual word? To me, that seems to be an unverified proposition, uh, presupposition. Um, this presupposition is generated by a circular loop that God is good because the Bible says so, and the Bible tells me God is, uh, so didn't argue with the Bible. I, I may have mangled that, but I think you get the idea. The key uh, steps toward uh, determining whether God is evil or not, at least in my opinion, is to uh, cog- uh, cogently prove uh, that the Bible represents God's God fairly accurately. If the Bible turns out not to provide an accurate representation of God, then it seems to me that it's difficult to ascertain whether God is, in fact, benevolent, neutral, sometimes good, sometimes evil, or full of malevolence. The Bible seems to have references that can support all three options. And um, I'll, uh, I'll leave it off there. Okay. For, for me to respond. Okay, so, um, yeah, I have, I'm not exactly sure which 
if you're responding to a comment I made and either in the podcast or on the boards, but yeah. So he was responding to one of the, uh, one of the articles and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't write down which one, but I think it was the evil God, um, Dilemma. Okay, so my understanding is is when we were discussing that, it wasn't even I wasn't really addressing whether the Bible is God's actual word. It was more sort of is God evil based on all factors considered. But obviously, yeah, in my opinion, I, I think it's possible that the Bible may not reflect the all good God, there could be, it's possible that there are errors in it, even of the moral example. So when you're, when you're saying, when you're asking me, like I, I responded to one person's question last week, how, what would it take for me to say God is evil or something? And I, I claim, okay, well, in terms of God himself, I, I have a properly basic belief that God is morally perfect and it's very, very strong in that regards. Um, but when it comes to the Bible as to reflecting that, um, I'm less certain of that. So I would say I'm 95% certain, still very strong, that when it comes to moral or major theological doctrines, that should be inerrant, so to speak. That should be uh, proper for the average person to read and, and understand. So if if there's something in the Bible that's 95.01% or more contradicts my moral conscience, then I would opt for, okay, well, I think that's probably an error in the Bible that doesn't really reflect the all-good God. Um, so hopefully that sheds some light as to how I would react. I so I wanted, to, I, I wanted to read that one in particular because that is the perfect lead-in to uh, the conversation that we're going to have two weeks from now on uh, sufficient attachment. Once again, your article is uh, very Bible-centric uh, here, uh, and I'm not going. I'm not going to explain it. People will get a chance to read uh, what you have to say in two weeks' time. But we will get into some of the things that we only hinted at uh, today. I think that um, your uh, Jim's post in your answer is a is is a good lead-in, and we'll come back on that discussion. In the meantime, uh, in one week's time, uh, we are going to talk about something that has been on my mind a lot and that has gotten a lot of attention on the Unbelievable Board in the last uh, week. Uh, and in fact, if you want to read my article in advance, go over to the Unbelievable Discussion Board and you can read my uh, longer uh, original post there. I will probably repost that in full as uh, my side of the argument. We will be talking about failure of the fall. See you next week. All right. Have a good week, everyone. <laughs>